Okay, we'll make a start. Okay, so the first passage that I've got is Zechariah 12, uh, 7 to 19. Zechariah 12. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attacked Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, and the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-9 For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. The one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Thank you, Luke. A couple of quick things before we we get going. I just thought I'd show you a couple of books. There's there's a book here called uh, Startup Nation that's been written about 10 years ago, which is about Israel, and it's really quite fascinating about how they've developed and what they've done and how they work out of their army. They don't just chuck the people in the services out at the end of their tenure. They actually take them and train them to be leaders. And they have certain certain people that they pick who has leadership qualities that they actually take. When they finish, because everybody in Israel does two or three years of service, um, they take them and they train them and they put them into government and business um, they deal with things differently to we do. If you're running a business and you go bankrupt, the government says you can't do anything till you get out of that and you're bankrupt for a number of years, all right, a person who goes bankrupt. But in Israel, they go, forget that. How much money do you need? And the government actually funds stuff to start up. They have more, more businesses listed on the American Stock Exchange than any other country in the world. They hold more patents than any other country. They, there's something like 7,000 patents that Israel has developed that, cha- that have new patents that they've patented, including that um, pill cam that I was telling you about. And, and all that sort of thing, America comes in with about 500. Saudi Arabia comes in with 157. So nations like China are, are trying to suck the information out of Israel and talking to them. Israel's guiding, um, and this book talks about it, Israel's actually helping the Chinese develop their, their military weapons, believe it or not. Believe it or not. It's just, it's just incredible, but they go to them, and, you know, and then they come along and they want to boycott all the, the Israeli businesses and, and yet you couldn't when you get when you get a computer and it says like it used to say I don't know what it says now but it used to say Intel inside well that was Israeli 
uh, your computer, your little desktop computer didn't run unless you had your Israeli little chip in it, things like that. And they make businesses, they develop. This is, I'm not trying to take up too much time, but it's a fascinating nation. In 2009, they finally finished developing electric cars. Israel's 200 kilometres long. So they built the cars and the cars were very cheap because you didn't buy a car with a battery in it that you had to replace, right? The batteries, the cars would drive into wherever, a service station. They didn't, they didn't actually get it up, but they're, they're working on it again now. Would drive into a service station, press a button, and something would come up out of the ground and take the battery out of the car, send it away to be charged and put a new one in and you drive out 30 seconds later. And they, they developed that and they patented that. And now we're running around trying to get the lithium and everything to try and make... And then if you buy your Tesla, um, which I'd enjoy driving, by the way, um, in five or eight years, you've got to turn around and spend thousands of dollars on new batteries because the batteries drift back. But the Israelis, they don't own, you don't own the battery. You get the battery from the servo. So you go into Ampol and you, instead of going up and plugging in and filling up with fuel, you press a button and your battery disappears and the new one comes and out your drive. It's not stupid, is it? God's given the Jews this this incredible knowledge, and so in well in 1215, when King John from the Magna Carta kicked the Jews out of England, um, he just stole all their money. Right in 1492, when Elizabeth and Philip from Spain kicked them out of out of Spain and drove them out and across the world, and all of them went across Europe, they took all their money. But yet they move in and they start take over and, and well they don't take over but they actually prosper the economy because God says those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse Genesis 12 1 to 3 anyway enough of that if you find it boring just turn off um, I want to show you this one this is um, Cole Stringer's book Cole Stringer lives up in Rabina good guy he wrote a book called The 800 Horsemen which tells the story of the Australian light horse in 1915 1917, sorry. Good book to read. Um, Kevin Connor, he's been around for a while. The 70 Weeks of Prophecy, which explains Daniel 9. Um, what's this one? The Mountains of Israel. Uh, 60,000 copies sold of that. What goes on on the mountains, which we were talking about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, God's Tsunami by Peter Sukavira. I've listened to him. Um, very good stuff. He's talking about the tsunami of God's glory going through the world and how so many people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, and William Glasshauer, who I had a lot to do with years ago, um, from Christians for Israel, based in Amsterdam. And uh, he wrote a book, Why Israel? And explains exactly. So if you can get any of those and you're interested, it's worth doing. The last one I want to show you is uh, Anzac Empires and Israel's restoration going all the way from 1798, French Revolution, all the way through to 1948. And Kevin Crombie comes out of Perth and he's written quite a few books on this and he's very, very good. Worked for St. George in Jerusalem for years and years. So just, you know, all this stuff's floating around. There's a huge amount in the... Word of God, it's just incredible what goes on. So I wanted to do that. Register for Revelation, please, like Luke was talking to you about. Um, it's important that you come and we'll do that. That's fun. It really is. It's fun. And uh, somebody said, tell me, about the, tell me about the millennium. I said, I can't. It's too big a subject. 
okay, and it's not taught in the church because in Revelation 20, there's two verses that says, and they shall rule and reign with Christ a thousand years, right? And we all go, oh, yeah, Jesus come back, he's landed on the Mount of Olives, going to rule and reign with Christ a thousand years, and we move on. And the next thing we read is there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But what happens in that thousand years? Most Christians only know that Satan gets let out of his prison at the end of the thousand years and God actually has to destroy him again. And then we go into the millennial age. But the millennial age is all through the Old Testament because the Jews, the Jews look at the coming of the kingdom. That's what that's all they're interested in. And when the kingdom comes, Jesus will come. The disciples said to Jesus, Will you at this time restore the kingdom? No. Time of the Gentiles. Then I'll restore the kingdom. But that's all they're interested in, is restoring the kingdom. But in order for the kingdom to be restored, Israel has to be regenerated. And we'll look at a little bit of that in this subject. So are you ready to go? This is called the climax of the ages. I'm going to deal with a one-world government. We've already dealt with that, so we'll do that quickly. We're going to deal with the Antichrist and some of the things that goes on with him and the tribulation. And we'll just mention that and then we'll go through and we'll do the campaign of Armageddon. Armageddon is not a single event, okay? Armageddon is a place. And with the return of Jesus, there's a campaign which hasn't been taught to any great extent of what happens over a period of a couple of days or a day or two or three, three days, I think somebody said, of Jesus coming back before he ascends the Mount of Olives. But as the church basically just looks at it and goes, oh, Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives, Remember I was telling you about the Shekinah glory going from the Mount of Olives and then the disciples say, well, what's happening, Jesus? He said, and the, the angel says, he's coming back the way he went because the Shekinah glory is going to come to the Mount of Olives. But when he comes back, before he actually puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, he doesn't land anywhere, but he deals with some things which we'll look at in this, okay? And if that doesn't expand your mind and stretch your brain, well, then I can't help you. <laughs> so the climax of the ages Lord we just ask that you will just teach us on this subject that you will give us open hearts, open spirits and open minds to hear what the spirit is saying to his church right now and in this room we are your church and we thank you for it receive your direction in the name of the, in, from the Holy Spirit in Jesus name, Amen Okay Did you know at the end of the age that all Three major religions of the world believe that it's Jesus who is coming back to judge the world. All three major religions. Christians believe in Jesus. His first coming, returning at the end of days to defeat the enemy and set up his kingdom and rule with a rod of iron, Psalms 2.9, for a thousand years. The Jews believe the Messiah is coming. They don't believe he's already been here. They believe he's coming. And he's going to set up his earthly kingdom. That was the question the disciples asked. Okay. The Muslims call Jesus Isa or Issa. They call Moses Musa. That's their name for it. They call Jesus Isa. And the Quran says, and I won't quote it to you because we don't want to spend too much time on it, that he will come, Jesus, Isa, will come to raise all people and judge them and cleanse the earth. Hello? Think about that. That's their faith. Muhammad's not coming back. Jesus is coming. Told you you'd stretch your mind. They believe the return of Isa is the third major sign of the last days. Jesus Christ, or Isa, is the only prophet not to have died and was raised by Allah, God. So we know that they've got that wrong because he did die. But still the fact remains that their belief is that he's coming back. 
So having dealt with all that and coming to that point of judgment, we now run into the tribulation, the seven-year period that we were talking about. And Daniel 9, which we looked at before, goes through and deals with it. But we'll look at about a bit of that. Um, so I want to look at these four details. So the first one that we're going to deal with today is the one world government. So the revived Roman Empire in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, I'll take you there and I'll just show you so that we can set the scene as this. And if you've got your Bibles, go there, go to Daniel chapter 2. This, is, this is, was terrifying for Nebuchadnezzar because he had a dream and he saw this great image and it scared the daylights out of him. Didn't scare him perhaps as much as the handwriting on the wall scared Bill Shazer, whose knees knocked together and they had to go and get his wife to clean, straighten him up. So here in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king and the king said to them, listen to this, I've had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Oh, king, said the Chaldeans, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. What a cop out. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't interested. He wanted them to tell him the dream, right? So he put the charge on them. You tell them the dream. And, of course, Daniel hadn't been there a long time, but they couldn't tell him the dream. And they basically said to him, well, we can't, unless you tell us the dream, we can't tell you the interpretation. So they, he decided to kill all the Chaldeans and the leaders and everything and wipe them out because they were just megalomaniacs. Had a bit of a messiah complex, Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel got to the point where he's actually taken in and if you read through, he told the king the dream and then he told him the interpretation. And what the dream was that there was this great image and it was made out of four things. The head was of gold, the chest and, and the breastplates were of silver, the loins were of bronze and then you come down to the, sorry, silver, and then you come down to the, the legs and the legs are iron going down, bronze going down. So the, the level of the quality of the, of the metal is deteriorating as it goes. And then you come down to the ten toes, which Daniel talks about, and the ten toes are made out of a mixture of clay and iron, and everybody knows that that does not stick together. All right? So some interpretations say the two legs are the, well, the iron is the Roman Empire because that's what they understood, but it's coming back again. But the two legs, one's east and one's west. You got that? And then there's the toes, which are the spin-offs of it, but they all fracture and the whole thing. So that's that was the dream he saw. So he tells him that there's four empires coming. And what happened was four empires came. His empire was there. You, O king, he said, you're the head of gold. Well, that was a smart move for a megalomaniac. You wouldn't tell him he was made of bronze, all right? He was the head of gold. Okay, says Nebuchadnezzar, I can, you got a boy, you're okay. See? He said, and then comes silver, which was the Persian Empire. It wasn't as beautiful and it wasn't as prosperous and it wasn't as good as the first one. The quality of the metal was less. And then the third one that comes is, is bronze. So that's the Greek Empire. And all of these empires came. I mean, but... In the middle of that, the leader of the Greek Empire will conquer the known world, but then he'll suddenly die, which Alexander the Great did, and it got divided into four different nations, right? 
and was led by four different kings who were the four generals under Alexander the Great. So that came to pass. And then came the last one, the Iron Empire. Well, Rome grew and came and established itself, but it, it was different. And it says it was different and more terrible than any of the previous ones. And so what happened with Rome was that then it would divide and then the toes would fall apart and it would collapse. But that was the four. And Nebuchadnezzar said, that's exactly my dream. So put a purple robe on him and Daniel's now king of the heap. He's number two in the land because he could tell him what the dream was. So it's interesting, isn't it, that he goes through this and we come to one world government and Daniel 2 in the dream talks about the fact that Rome is going to cover the whole world. They talk about the Antichrist as coming out of Rome of the people who were to come talking about Rome being revived. Okay, so here we have a situation. Revived Roman Empire of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is split into two, and we talked about that, and the Muslims taking Constantinople in 1452, and then everybody moving up into Russia and through um, Ukraine and all that sort of thing. Uh, this split balance will fall with the destruction of Russia, which we saw in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, the events taking place with the invasion of Ukraine, Russia having naval and air bases in Syria and, and wanting to prop up Assad. Syria, um, Iran has built a power, oh, Russia built a, power, a nuclear power plant in Iran to help them and is helping them get nuclear weapons right now, this very moment. Um, the eastern part destroyed, the, which is the Eastern Empire, which is the Russia, when that's destroyed in Ezekiel 38, 39, suddenly the way is open for a one-world empire. And at that point of time, Israel will rebuild the third temple, which they're running around now, all prepared. They've got the clothes made. They've got the all the, all the utensils made. They've got the priests there. They've even managed to rebreed a red heifer, which was a very rare animal, and it disappeared, but they've got it back, and they, they're raising them in Texas at the moment. Um, I'm working on this for sacrifice and, and they're going to put a temple in and they're going to bring sacrifices back. And you go, why? Because they're Old Testament and this is all they see and understand is sacrifices. You understand? So they're building this and they're, they're wanting to build that. So they're ready to build the temple. Well, when, for instance, Russia gets into the mountains of Israel up in the Golan Heights and comes down and through the West Bank and destroys, um, starts destroying things and God comes in and destroys them and buries them in the Valley of Haman Gog, then... Who do you think is going to stop them building the third temple? Nobody, because Israel is going to be such a powerful nation at that point of time because God's intervened for them. And so they'll build a temple. But the temple, understand this, is not the millennial temple. That's the fourth temple, and it will be built during the reign of Jesus on this earth in the millennium. So we've got this, this stuff going on, and it's just sort of all coming to pass. Um, so here we had the gold was Babylon, 605 to 39, the silver was Medo-Persia, which was under Cyrus, the brass was Greece, the iron was Rome, and then the iron and clay on the bottom becomes a revived Roman Empire made up of the nations, which points to one world government, ten toes. Okay? But all falling apart. So it, somebody was asking me about the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome, where's Julie? Club of Rome had 100 people in it. 100 people were signed up for the Club of Rome in 1968. They first met and they divided the world up into economic zones. They, their 
thesis, they were scientists and economists. Their thesis was that the world was going to reach a stage of economic development where it couldn't go any further and that the economy and the climate would start to collapse. Hello? We're going to have climate change, but we didn't know to call it that then, all right? And the economy was going to collapse, but that they would be able to control it. So these 10 zones would work where if you were not doing the right thing, like Russia's not doing the right thing and it's zone five, well then, sorry, mate, you're not going to get any help. We're going to put sanctions on you. Sound familiar? And then if Europe starts to play up, we can turn around and do that if we've got the power to do that. So everybody gets held by that. Mikhail Gorbachev, who passed away this week, was a member of the Club of Rome. Interesting, isn't it? So there were 100 members in that, and they keep on replacing them as they go along. So 10 economic zones, one world government controlling the whole thing. Antichrist coming up out of that, those 10, those 10 nations working together, or those t- the kings of those 10 nations, 10 zones working together. See, all I'm saying to you is people would say, oh, that's Europe. Europe's, Europe, the European Union's got to be got to have 10 nations in it. Well, it's got about 28, so it's not European Union. But the 10 economic zones that they brought in in 1970 actually fits it because you've got to start thinking globally, not national or continental-wise. You've got to think globally, the whole world. Because what actually prophesies in Daniel is that the time, second time the Roman Empire rises up, it will cover the whole world, not just the known world, the whole world, and it has never done that, okay? So things are changing. So having dealt with that in some way, is that okay? Then we've got the rise of the Antichrist. Okay, so I put Emmanuel Macron there because he too has a Messiah complex and thinks that he's king of the world, but he's really not. And what I've shown you is this is this is Europe with the stars around it, and there's Emmanuel Macron. And, of course, you know the Antichrist sign is 666, don't you? Okay, and then that's just a Roman soldier, and then the three unholy trinity trying to... Putin is trying to reset the world stage. And then there's the United Nations floating in under, underneath all that. Some years ago, I was in Amsterdam. We went down to Luxembourg in Belgium with Willem Glasser, actually, and we went to the European Parliament because they were establishing a lobby group to lobby for the benefit of Israel. There were something like 200 Palestinian lobby groups running in the Parliament of the EU, United Nations, uh, European Union, and nothing for Israel. And so we went down there and there was a bit of a service and um, these guys established and set up this lobby group to go and lobby for Israel, which was a very good thing and it was supported by a lot of people and things like that. So I was with a friend called Leo Gerlich from, lives up in Bolwara, and we travelled there and, and uh, we were looking at doing some stuff. We were working with Fred Nile and Gordon Moyes and others at the time and the Jewish Board of Deputies and so on and so forth. And uh, Willem drives us down to Luxembourg in Belgium and we go and we enter in. And when you enter in, they give you a sign, Ian, like, like you get when you go to VIPs, round, hangs around your neck and says, I'm here to help. You know, that, that sign that we try to get you to read every time VIPs is on? Yeah, I know. I know. But, but this had a number, right? Large number. So everybody going in has a number. So Leo says to me, he's a Dutchman, so he's got no sense of humour. 
and he looks at his number and he says, Oh, Mark. Mark, he says, what number did you get? I said, 666, Leo. And he goes, ah! Like this. I said, no, not really, 536. All right. It's too good to miss, I'll tell you. <laughs> I scared him. He was quiet for a while. But so out of this coming, we all get the rise of the Antichrist. So the events leading to the one world government and its division, the Antichrist rises to power. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, so Daniel 9, right, 24. So 24a, part of the verse, first part of the verse says, 70 weeks are determined for your people in your holy city. So we did that, and then it lists the number of reasons for that to happen, and we'll look at that. Um, but part B says, um, refers to, and another shall rise, sorry, it is 7, 24. Uh, ten horns of ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones, and he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. In other words, he'll blaspheme against God. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High, which he's already doing. He shall intend to change times and the laws, and the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a times, which is the first part of the um, running up the tribulation. So then it goes on and deals with, the court will be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness and the kingdom is under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. That's the church people, by the way. Whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and whose dominion shall serve and obey him. And that was the end of that account. So obviously the Antichrist is coming up out of that. And in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3, we read this about the Antichrist. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together, do not be shaken in mind or troubled by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us though the day of Christ had come. In other words, don't worry if somebody tells you that Jesus has already arrived and, and they're gone. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day, Obadiah 15, you can go and read about it, unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God. So the point there is that this falling away must come first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay? So he starts to come out of there, and there are two events that occur before the day of the Lord. One is the apostasy or falling away of belief. If you look at our last census, you discover that we're now down to 48% of people from 62% previous census who say that they're Christians. And in fact, 30% say they have no religion at all. In other words, they're pagans. So there's a falling away, and if you look at it, it there's a falling away across the whole of the Western world at the time this is just a collapse um, it's going to change because when Jesus come when we get in the tribulation 144,000 Jews who are not you know Jehovah's Witnesses the 144,000 Jews 12,000 from each of the tribes right and it specifically lists the tribes are, are anointed to go out and take the gospel to the world why are the Jews being sent out because they're not given the gospel to preach so why in the, in the beginning of the tribulation are 144,000 Jewish evangelists sent out preaching about Jesus? Church is not here and we've been given the, the command to direct the gospel. 
The angels haven't been given the gospel to send. It's been you and me that have been given the gospel to send. And when we're gone, they're now going to take the world by storm and the gospel's going to be preached in all nations as a witness and God's going to use his Jewish people to do it. It's what Revelation teaches, 144,000 of them. Does that stretch your mind? Read the word. So there's a falling away. People say, oh, it's going to be a great revival before Jesus comes back. And there may well be, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's going to be a falling away. And we're seeing a falling away. We, we can't get people back in the church. They don't want to come anymore. They find it irrelevant. i got, I got kids that have been good Christians all their life. And, and what's the comment I hear? Why? Why? Because this is where you come to worship Jesus. So I just want you to think about that because all of a sudden on the scene, Revelation talks about it, there's 144,000 witnesses travelling around the world and millions, billions, hundreds of millions, billions are going to come into faith in Jesus in that seven-year period. But it's the Jewish, Jewish evangelists who now become Messianic Jews. So there's a falling away. The revelation of the man of sin, the son of perdition or the Antichrist takes place before the beginning of the tribulation, but maybe after the world has been divided into ten nations or ten kingdoms, or maybe not. Okay, How is he recognised? We're not told how he will be identified, but he will be recognisable. The value of his name, 666 in Revelation 13.8, and because of the following event, number three, the peace treaty he makes with Israel just before the tribulation is essential because it then sets in place the seven-year tribulation. Right? You with me? And the signing of the treaty triggers the tribulation. He must be in a position of power to enforce it because if he goes in and says, I'm making a peace treaty, they say, who said you could do that? Now, people, people conjecture and it could be true and it may not be true, but, you know, I've had a couple of questions and people have said, do you think... Uh, Zelensky from there from Ukraine is actually the Antichrist. He could be. Putin isn't. He's the Prince of Gog. So he's already got a job. Could he be? Well, he could be. But then anybody could be once the enemy takes control of their mind and their will and their thoughts and their emotions. And, you know, some people think Scott Morrison was the Antichrist. Other people think Albo's become that. You know, where do you end up? But the sign will be his number and the fact that he has the authority to make that peace treaty. And that's very significant. Okay, So then we come to a false peace and security as it rises up. And it talks about that in Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 5, which I think we read earlier. But when they say, verse 3, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. They're all going to think they've got the world nicely packed down. You know, we've dealt with Russia and whatever's happened to Russia's happened to Russia and we're all nicely packed down and we're doing very nicely and there's peace all over the world and therefore if there's peace, there's got to be safety. And yet Thessalonians says, suddenly it all gets blown away and the tribulation takes off and everything that they've worked for is just in tatters. It's dust at their feet. All right. So this false peace and false security where they say peace, peace, but the Bible says there is no peace because in the background they're working on it, trying to do, develop it. So 
the world's divided into ten kingdoms, perhaps, and working together, the Antichrist is rising to power. The world's living under false security. It's a shattered by the start of the tribulation. The Antichrist suddenly takes total control, and the world thinks he is wonderful, and they allow him to do whatever he wishes. He's actually, uh, there's been an assassination attempt, and he's actually wounded in the head. But he's healed from that, and they say, oh, let's all follow after him. What a wonderful person he is, because he's, he's been healed of that mortal wound in his head. So we'll all follow after him. So there's another sign of how you can pick on him if you're still here. I don't want to be. So then we come to the fifth thing, which is broken promises. At the middle of the tribulation, where the, the, the Antichrist is, is hit like that in Revelation 13.3, talks about that. Uh, his wound is healed and he's resurrected. Um, that's Revelation 13.3 if you want to write it down. This causes the whole world to worship him and follow him. But he breaks the covenant with Israel because the whole world's now following him, not just Israel, and places his image in the rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Matthew 24.15-22, where Jesus talked about when you see the abomination of desolation sitting in the holy place, then flee. Two people will be in the field working together and so on and so forth. But flee. If you've got any brains, get out. Just run because it's coming. And, you know, I don't know whether you understand this, but God, God said in his word, I never do anything, but I don't show it to you before I do it. Okay? So he says to Abraham, take your son, your only son that you love, Isaac, and up in the mountain that I will show you, and there sacrifice him to me. So Abraham backs it in and goes, um, and goes up, goes on to Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem there. And he, he's up there and, and he's ready to sacrifice. And God says, the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice because he's walking in faith. He turns around and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. So he sacrifices the ram rather than Isaac. But you see, Abraham and God had a covenant. And the deal of the covenant is everything that you possess is also possessed by your covenant partner and everything your covenant partner possesses is also possessed by you. That's a good thing to learn about if you're a Christian. Because everything that you possess belongs to the Lord, but everything that belongs to the Lord also belongs to you. And some of you are going to get to heaven and get taken into warehouses and go, that's all yours up there, and you never got it. You know? Because that's covenant. Covenant cuts the blood. That's why you wear a wedding ring on the left hand, because that vein, that vein through there runs directly to the heart. And when the blood's shed and the blood's mixed, it's running directly to the heart of the matter. You with me? That's what covenant's about. And Jesus said, take this bread and eat this bread. This is my body broken for you. That's covenant. That was a covenant meal. They would eat bread. They would drink wine. They would take salt. And they would, they would go through. And Jesus took away that old Passover thing that the, the Jews were doing in the old covenant and brought in communion bread and wine because that's what we now do as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine you do show forth my death until I come again he said and it's covenant right and he shed his blood for that so he always shows us so he he demonstrated in Abraham with Isaac so that he could actually bring it to pass God could actually bring it to pass with his son Jesus you with me so he demonstrates it so this goes on all the way through so what we're seeing here is, is all these things. When you see the abomination of desolation, flee. Why? Because Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the eighth king of Syria, when the nation was divided after Alexander the Great, went through and attacked Jerusalem. 
and it ended up in what's known as the Maccabean Revolt of about 168 to 140, right? And what happened? He came in and destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple again, sacked it, and then he set his own image up there and said, now you can all worship me. So what's God done? He's shown it before it's actually taking place. And the Jews know that story. So when you see the abomination of desolation flee, and they do, those that are born again and they're hearing the word. So here's the broken promises. He's put his image in the temple. He said, you're all going to worship me. And if you don't worship me, well, you're in trouble. We're going to persecute you and attack you. So then we get the false prophet and the mark of the beast in Revelation 13 again, which describes a false prophet, the false prophet as using the Antichrist's authority to force the world to worship the Antichrist and his image. See, your unholy trinity, if you don't know it, is Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, right? So he tries to replicate tries to replicate what God's done with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Satan sets himself as the Father. The Antichrist sets himself as the Son to be worshipped by all. And the Holy Spirit is taken by the false prophet because he's doing marvellous miracles and everybody's following him. All right? So the false prophet is using the Antichrist's authority to force the world to worship the Antichrist who's got his image sitting in the temple. It has the power to breathe and speak. Did you know that? It has the power to breathe and speak, this image. And when he finally issues the mark of the beast, no one can buy or sell unless you've got the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast, Revelation says, is either on your forehead or on your right hand. Okay? Two spots, forehead or right hand. And it's a mark that's there. So when you walk in, could be a QR code, who knows? Everybody thought it was the three Bs on the first bank card that ever came out. Whatever it is, there's a mark. So when you go through customs coming into Australia, you stand there and they photograph your head, right? Oh, that image fits that photo image, but if you've got a mark, you just go straight through. That's the mark. You don't get confused by the fact that other things are pointing towards it. They're pointers, but get understand that the mark is a mark. Okay, Definitely a mark. On the right hand, not the left, the right hand or the forehead. Okay? So that's the mark of the beast. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the scene on earth changes drastically. Satan loses his place in heaven. He's kicked out. All right? He um, fallen down to the earth. He's cast to the earth by Michael and his angels, Revelation 12. The Antichrist, once a political world leader, becomes demonized, and the beast and the ten kings all hand their power over to him. Devastation of the earth, it's a mess. Russia and the Islamic nations are already destroyed. The four environmental judgments have destroyed one-third of the earth's vegetation and seas. You could actually be in part of that right now, people. And 50% of the population has perished due to war in many places and, according to Revelation 6 and uh, a couple of verses in there, in, in many places, including Asia and Europe, the things that are going on with war. So... That's the rise of the Antichrist, and he becomes the leader of the world. The tribulation, the third thing. In Daniel 9, 24 to 27, with the weeks of Daniel, we read, there's 70 weeks of decree for your people. We've been through that, and we've discussed that and looked at it. So the seven-year period, beginning with the peace treaty made by the Antichrist with Israel, secures its protection for seven years. The tribulation, I'll say this again, does not commence with the rapture of the believing church, but with the enactment of the seven-year treaty. 
That's the beginning of the tribulation. What is the purpose of the tribulation? There are six things that Daniel says in Daniel 9.24 that must be accomplished for Israel before the return of the Messiah. Let me read them to you. Number one, to finish or bring to completion the transgression or rebellion. What rebellion? The rebellion of the, this is now dealing with Israel, not the church. They don't get confused. This is dealing with Israel. Have I lost anybody yet? It's dealing with Israel. The rebellion is when they rejected the Messiah on a, a Palm Sunday, rejecting him as their king. That was the rebellion. They've got to bring the end to that. We'll run through this quickly. To make an end or seal up sins or missing the mark. Romans 11.27 says all Israel will be saved. It's a national reconciliation. Thirdly, to make a reconciliation for iniquity which refers to the sin. Jeremiah 31 says, this is not like but the, the, the covenant I make with Israel in those days. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is not like the previous covenant. It's a new covenant where they will not say, man to his son know the Lord or the son to his father know the Lord, but all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Okay, a new covenant coming in from Jeremiah 31, 31. So these three things belong to Israel who rebelled against the Messiah. The next three things are positive as Israel and the people are restored. They're bringing in everlasting righteousness, the millennium reign of Jesus. That's what it refers to, Revelation 20, 20, verse 4 to 6. To seal up or close off or make an end of vision and prophecy. Now, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that in Christ, prophecy's finished. Vision's finished. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision or a dream. Daniel has a vision or a dream. But it, it's done. It's finished. We've been told what's going to happen, so that's got to be brought into place. To anoint the most holy place, what does that mean? That means the temple. It doesn't mean the third temple, which will be destroyed at the beginning of the tribulation. It means, it means the millennial temple, which is brought in, which Jesus sets up, which is a huge thing. It's a huge thing. It's like half a kilometre by half a kilometre by whatever high. It's just massive on a, on a plane that rises up out of Jerusalem of 50 square kilometres. And one ends Jerusalem, a new a Jerusalem, new earthly Jerusalem, not a heavenly Jerusalem that sits there, and the temple. And in that temple, he rules and reigns. Okay? So they've got to anoint that. It's got to be anointed, and it's going to be anointed by Jesus. If you read uh, Hebrews, you'll discover that talks about Jesus going into the heavens. No, it's sorry, it's Revelation. About him going into the in and seeing the John saw the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of the Lord, because Moses only made a copy that he gave to the Jews back in Sinai of what he saw in heaven. And Moses was instructed by God, make sure that you make it exactly according to what you were shown in heaven. So let me go to Armageddon and the second coming. The campaign's in eight stages. Let me run through it very quickly. The assembling of the Antichrist um, armies in Revelation 16, 12 to 16, and the drying up of the Euphrates River, won't be long, uh, in Iraq, which is happening now. Somebody was complaining the other day, the Euphrates is drying up. Well, we know that. It makes it easier for the Antichrist to gather his armies, including the kings of the east. And a decree is issued to the allies by the Antichrist to gather together in Revelation 16, and they come to a place which in, in the Bible is called Armageddon, which is the plain of Megiddo, all right? And they all gather together, so they come in off the, off the ocean there around um, 
Tel Aviv on that flat land that's called the Plain of Jezreel. They come in there, and all the armies start to assemble there, thousands, millions, millions and millions of them. Some people say the next thing is the destruction of Babylon. Now, Babylon doesn't exist, although Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild it in the 80s and the 90s before he lost his neck. Okay, so he's trying to do it. So, okay, we're up here now to the, this, this tribulation timeline running through. We're up here now to one week, the seven-year tribulation, and then we come into this other part of it. So at the end of that, Jesus is coming back. This is now the campaign of Armageddon. So is Babylon rebuilt? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows, but things happen. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem. From the valley of Jezreel, the armies will move south towards Jerusalem and Jerusalem will again be destroyed according to Zechariah 1, uh, 14, 1 to 2, the prophet, which prophesies the city will be surrounded by the nations. It will fall. The houses will be rifled. The women will be ravished and half will go into slavery and half will remain in the city. Then the Antichrist armies come down to Bosra. Why? Why Bosra? I thought the, that Jesus landed on the Mount of Olives and the Battle of Armageddon took place around Jerusalem. Well, it does, but first of all, it's got to go to Bosra. Why? Because when they were told to flee, when they saw the abomination of desolation, they went south. And history records that they, they've done it before, but they will go down, they'll flee out and down the valley and go down south and they'll come down to Bosra, which is near Petra. Can I give you a scripture for it? Isaiah 63, 1-6. Verse 1. Who is this that comes from Edom? That's down south. With dyed garments from Bosra. This one who is glorious in his apparel, who are they talking about? Jesus, travelling in the greatness of his strength, who speaks, who will speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your this is the question. First question is, who's coming from Bosra? The second question is, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have answer. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from me the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I wondered, and there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my fury, and brought them down their strength to the earth. So God has gone down into Bosra, Jesus has gone down into Bosra, and defeated the Antichrist and his armies down there, and saved the tents of Israel. Then he comes on back up. And in the meantime, in Zechariah 12.10, Israel is being regenerated because they're now calling out to their Messiah to come and save us because things are so bad. So I'll just read this quickly to you, Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out in the house of David on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there will be a great morning in Jerusalem like the morning at Hadad-Rinim in the plain of Megiddo. And so it goes on. Okay? So they're starting to look and they're seeing because they're crying out and they're going, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, and, 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 or come Messiah. And here he is. So he then comes back and comes into the valley of Jehoshaphat and the Kidron Valley. He comes outside Jerusalem's eastern walls. He cleans out the Antichrist. 
The lawless one in Thessalonians 2.8 is revealed and the Lord Jesus slays him with the breath of his mouth to bring to naught by the manifestations of his company. The Antichrist, the false prophet, are taken and killed and Satan is confined to Hades for a thousand years. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into hell. Okay, And the thousand years is the millennial reign of Christ before being released and finally destroyed by Jesus. Stage 8. Stage 8 of the Armageddon campaign described in Zechariah 14, 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, talking about those that are fighting against him as he fights in the day of battle, and on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, making a large valley, and so it goes on about the rivers flowing out. So the final thing is that Jesus ascends to the Mount of Olives. And at that point, he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's subdued the Antichrist. He's taken the false prophet. They've both been cast into hell. He slays Satan, puts him in the, in, brings him back, puts him into, into a prison for a thousand years. He's then released, and then Jesus comes and finally wipes him out. And in that thousand years, we rule and we reign with Christ. Israel becomes the preeminent nation. Interestingly enough, that little nation that we talked about in the corner becomes the preeminent nation. They have a new temple. They have a rebuilt Jerusalem after all that destruction. And for a thousand years, Jesus reigns through an earthly kingdom called the Millennium. And we, as Christians, as the bride of Christ, rule and reign with him for that 1,000 years. We govern the world. We govern the principalities. We govern the authorities. All those things that Jesus talked about in uh, Ephesians about principalities, thales, powers of the earth and all that sort of thing that are arrayed against the kingdom will be turned around because Jesus will do the restoration of all things. What's bad will now become good. What's good will be kept good. The earth which is destroyed, Romans 8 says, all of creation groans together waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God that are going to be revealed? You and me, the church. And creation is, is sort of, because of sin, is hanging on like this. But this is the miracle that takes place in that millennium that when we are revealed and when we come to rule and reign with Jesus, all these things start to reverse themselves. And so when God planted a garden east of Eden, he said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go out there and extend that garden and do the job that I've started. Here's your seed, if you like, the Garden of Eden. Make it go around the world. Well, Jesus is going to come in and do that. He said, I'm going to restore all things in the time of restoration. And we're going to rule and reign with him. So we're at the end. The Lord shall stand on the Mount of Olives. It shall split in two. People will feel, flee through the valley west of Jerusalem, down south. When the battle of, uh, is ended, Jesus is the Lion of Judah, the victorious, and is about to commence establishing his rule. Along with the ascent of the Mount of Olives, Revelation 16 demonstrates seven, several cleticasmic events as part of the seventh bowl judgment. It is done, it says in verse 17, because this judgment brings the seven years of the tribulation to a definite end. There are convulsions of nature. In, in verse 18, greatest earthquakes, Jerusalem broken into three parts, Babylon suffering the, the fourth full wrath of God. Every island flees away and there are great geological changes and there's hail weighing 50 kilograms. It cleans the earth and tidies it up. The tribulation ends with Armageddon, the return of Messiah at this time. 
Can I just close by reading to you from Revelation 22? And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires take the water of life freely. And then he goes down and he finishes this. Who testifies to this thing says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And that's why we're here. We're here because he's coming back. We're here because he's been. We're here because he's coming back to take his bride to be with him forever. We're going to have a marriage of the Lamb. And we're going to be married to Jesus. We're going to become the bride of Christ. We're going to have a wedding feast. There's plenty of that Jesus talked about. And we're going to rule and reign. Basically, it's going to be, what do we do, Jesus? Speak to my wife. So I want to ask you a question because, you know, this, this is really, really important. And really, we've spent a lot of time, we talk about Jesus coming the first time. And the great question of an evangelist is, if you were to die tonight, do you know that you will wake in the presence of Jesus? Actually, Bob Miggins was here at VIPs on Wednesday and he said, quoted that, well, the first half, and then he got the second half a bit different. He said, if you were to die tonight, you know you're going to end up in hell. But we're a bit softer than that. Do you know that you're going to wake in the presence of Jesus? And that, that's the clarion call of an evangelist all down the line. And you know, people respond to that because the Holy Spirit works on it. But you know, God's showing us that there's more. If Jesus was to come today, would you be ready? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Are you prepared to hear that shout, that voice of the archangel, that trump of God, and know that you're going to be carried away to be with Jesus and rule and reign with him forever? That's the call to evangelism. And so as we close, I'm just simply going to say this to you. You may not know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. You can't be part of the bride of Christ if you don't. So come to Jesus today. He says, he comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And maybe you're not ready. Maybe you're sitting here and you're being a bit sceptical and you're thinking, well, he's talking some stuff. Go and check what the word of God says. You know, Don't take my word for it. Go and find your own. But the question is, are you ready? And if you're not, then make yourself ready. Come to the Lord. Commit yourself to him. Yes, Lord, if you were to come right now, I know for certain in my heart, in my spirit, in my soul, in my body, that I would be taken to be with you forever and ever and rule and reign with you. So I leave that with you. If you can't answer perhaps that questions or both of those questions, first part and the second part, then come and talk to me or talk to somebody Get yourself right with God because we don't know the day nor the hour, but any time. Amen? Did you get something out of today? Okay. Glad you did. When you're going, just we're also going, Pam's going to have out there a little donation box. If you, we, There's no charge for today and we're not doing that, but there are certain costs that the church has given. You know, This church has given us this whole place and we've got Ian up the back working and other people working and they're just really generous. And um, this is not for me. It's not for anything like that. I don't take money for preaching the word. 
Sorry. All right. This is if you feel that you've been blessed today and you want to make a contribution as you go out, I'm simply saying to you, there's a box out there. Plant whatever you want to plant, and it will be gratefully received. All right. If you don't want to, that's fine. But if you want to, there is an opportunity. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word, which tells us so much about him and so much that's going to happen. We thank you that you haven't left us as orphans, that you are coming back. In my Father's house, Jesus said, I go to I go, there are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and take you to be with myself. And do you know who's building the mansions and preparing them? The master, master carpenter of the universe. Think about that. You're not going to have squeaky doors or rattly windows. Everything's going to be done perfectly because that's what he is. He's a good carpenter. And he's coming back for you and for me. So, Lord, bless these people as we go. Thank you for today. And may you just uh, prosper them as they go home. Keep them safe in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.